Sleigh bells ring. Are you listening? In the lane, snow is glistening. A beautiful sight. We're happy tonight. Walking in a winter wonderland. Gone away is the bluebird. Hello, welcome to the Quarter to Three Games podcast. My name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not the Battlestar Galactica board game. Sorry, sorry, uh, uh, not Final Fantasy, Fantasy Flight. (laughs) Uh, Let's see, so this week let's talk about some of these uh, co-op board games that have a trader mechanic. Um, What a revelation those were when I found them, That, that, that... uh, and even before Battlestar Galactica, Shadows Over Camelot, this idea that, hey, we're playing a co-op game, but one of us isn't. Uh, and there was this sense, if you were the traitor, you know, if you were a Cylon in Battlestar Galactica, or if you were, uh, it was, yeah, it was called the traitor in Shadows Over Camelot, uh, you were getting away with something, you were being sneaky. And you were, you were tricking your friends in a completely different way then you uh, vied against or competed with your friends in other games. Here you were tricking them because they thought you were trying to help, and really you weren't. Um, it was a new, insidious kind of competition for, for me. Uh, this kind of, and, and there have been games that tap into that around for a long time. Uh, the werewolf game, for instance, which uh, is very nicely formalized in a, a little tabletop game. Ted Gummit, I want to. Uh, Ted Osback has made a game called One Night Ultimate Werewolf, I believe. Uh, I, I meant to look up the publisher of that. But it is a great, quick, five-minute, ten minutes tops way to have that whole hidden mechanic, one of us is a traitor, let's figure out who's doing it, to get that kind of experience. Um, and it's got more gameplay to it than Resistance, which is another similar thing set on a tabletop where... In the course of voting, you're supposed to find out who is the... I think it's called the spy in Resistance. You're trying to find out who is the spy. Uh, what makes these games unique for me is... Uh, I'm going to theorize that it's somewhere between me playing games as systems. You know, here are the rules. Let's learn them. Uh, let's compete against each other to see who can get the highest score and win the game. Um, and yeah, the narrative stuff is cool, but it's got to have good gameplay. Uh, it, it, at least I, it doesn't have to have, it's better if it has good gameplay. Uh, with something like Battlestar Galactica, for instance, which I think in ways is a terribly designed game, uh, it's just so thematic. And the narrative stuff in Battlestar Galactica carries a lot of the weight. But for the most part, when I come to a game, I need good gameplay systems. I want this to be well designed. I want it to be well thought out. I've seen a lot of games, I've played a lot of games, and if you haven't done your job as a designer, you're gonna lose me. Uh, and that's very different from when I was a kid and I first got into games by playing Dungeons and Dragons at a tabletop with other kids my age, with my friends. Um, all that stuff in the Dungeon Master's Guide and the Player's Handbook, it, it was kind of optional. You know, we would incorporate bits and pieces as we could. Uh, and I suspect a lot of people did that with D&D and probably still do that with tabletop RPGs because they enjoy more this emergent interaction and this kind of storytelling. The systems part of it, the rules, maybe aren't as important to them. And I'm, I'm generalizing here. I don't really know much about the psychology of the modern tabletop RPG. I've been invited to join games a few times. 
And I feel like that's just the sort of thing I don't want to do. You know, I, I've, I'm long past the point in my life where I want someone to ask me, okay, what are you going to say to the tavern keep? And then I have to say something like, Hoy there, tavern keep, have ye heard any rumors of late about the goblins from the dell? And then the dungeon master tells me what the tavern keep says. Oh my god, I don't want to do that. I, uh, part of it is I would be embarrassed to do it. Uh, part of it is I had a career, if you wanted to use that word, or at least a long dalliance with, with acting, with theater, with, with play acting, and that in a way is what playing RPGs is. Uh, and it's not really something that I care to do anymore. Um, I'm into it for the systems and for the gameplay. Uh, so here, I think, is where that traitor stuff really bridges a gap for me and really brings in some of that RPG stuff uh, from my days of play acting. Because when you are a trader, you must necessarily, and this is within the context of very definite rules, you must play act. You must make the other players think that you are human. And you're not going to do this by rolling the right number on the die, or drawing the right card, or making the right decision about where to put your worker. You're going to do this by tapping into the same kinds of tools, if you want to call them that, or that same corner of your brain, or, a better way, you're going to do this by tapping into that same creative impulse that you would tap into when the dungeon master would say, What do you say to the tavern keeper? So rather than me saying, Ho, tavern keeper, what rumors have you heard of the goblins of the Dell? I say things like, I'm not a Cylon. Why do you think I'm a Cylon? Did you see the move he made two turns ago? That's exactly what a Cylon would do. Notice how he did it. Look at the look on his face. Oh my god, you can totally tell he's grinning. Like all of that, 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 that play acting stuff comes out with these trader mechanics. Whether I'm a trader or not, by the way, if I'm a trader and I'm just lying to try to uh, pawn the suspicion off onto someone else, that's that's the same kind of thing as if I'm not the trader and I'm trying to convince people I'm not. Um, you have to make a case. And you have to do this using, in a way, play acting. And there's some logic involved, and um, but a lot of it is especially for the trader, is, is pretending and uh, making up things. You know, even if I'm not the trader, and I, you know, I might have to lie or make up things or overstate a case, for instance, because I suspect someone else is the trader. Um, but all of this exists in this glorious, wide-ranging middle ground between role-playing and rules. And uh, it's... <clears throat> excuse me. Sorry there. And it's something that I've, I've really enjoyed ever since being introduced to the Battlestar Galactica game. Uh, now, one of my problems with the Battlestar Galactica game, in addition to, I think it's not very well made. I mean, it's had so many expansions piled onto it. It's just kind of a mess right now. And you, you pick and choose from the different parts you want to use, and, and you, you figure out what kind of game you're going to play, and you leave behind. I mean, it's just it's this, this weird cafeteria experience game at this point. Um, and I think it doesn't hang together very well. I think it takes way too long. One of my big problems with it is if you're a Cylon, those are the traitors, of course, if you know the show, the Cylons are robots who look just like human beings. Listen to me. Here I am on a games podcast explaining Battlestar Galactica to you. You, you don't need that explained. Anyway, if you're a Cylon, if you're the traitor in Battlestar Galactica, a lot of the times all you have to do is just lie low. And the game itself, the cooperative game where the humans are, are collaborating to try to get the fleet to, uh, what planet are they going to? They're going to Earth? 
Caprica? No. They're, yeah, they're going to Earth, I think. Uh, the players have to collaborate to get the fleet where it's going. And a lot of times, the game itself will defeat them. They will run out of fuel or food or morale. You know, one of those things will will deplete, hit zero, that's a fail state, and the game is over. And the Cylon maybe didn't have to do anything except not help too much. Um, and that's kind of a problem I have with Battlestar Galactica is it's a co-op game that can be really hard to win, especially when you're playing with more casual players. And a lot of my friends are more casual Uh and I don't use that to denigrate them. They've just got other things to do, and they're not super into board games. We only get to do it, like, once a week. Some of them aren't there every week, so they play less. Um, and so some of them aren't. You know, they haven't totally finessed the systems in Battlestar Galactica, so most of the games we lose just because the game defeated us and not the traitor. So here is where, and by the way, that's also true of Shadows Over Camelot, which I believe predated Battlestar Galactica, and the traitor has even less to do in Shadows Over Camelot. Um... And, and plus, there, there are very few opportunities in Shadows Over Camelot to suspect someone of being a traitor. You know, one of the difficult things to do is is create a gameplay system where the traitor has to risk, might have to risk outing him or herself. Uh, and I don't feel Shadows Over Camelot is terrible at that. Uh, Battlestar Galactica, if you're playing with people who aren't super good, can be terrible at that. Uh, and here's where this week's game, the game I want to talk about this week, comes into play. So, uh, Plaid Hat Games is mostly known, I don't know about mostly known, I think one of their most successful games is Summoner Wars. And I'm not a fan of Summoner Wars. I mean, it does some clever stuff, there's a lot of dice, there's a lot of cards, there's this tabletop positional stuff going on. Um, I didn't have a very good introduction to it uh, when my friend taught it to me. And by the way, oh, if you're going to teach someone a game, oh my gosh, please do it right. As I've said before, every game only has one chance at a first impression. Uh, so if you want to show your friends a game, you got to do your homework. And, and I wonder, too, is that part of my problem with Summoner Wars? Is it that the guy who introduced me to it didn't really do his homework very well? Or is it a problem with the game itself? Whatever the case, I didn't really like it when it first came out. It wasn't for me. I fiddled with it on the iPad. Uh, I can recognize some of the clever things that Plat Hat Games has done with it. Um, but it's just it's not for me. Uh, Plat Hat Games has also done a game called Bioshock Infinite based on the the uh, video game. I haven't seen that. Uh, they've done something called Of Mice and Mystics. I think I've got that right. I'm afraid I don't know the first thing about that. But what I know Plat Hat Games for is a really cool game called City of Remnants. Um, and the way I describe City of Remnants, if you like real time strategy games, you know, video games, I think you would love City of Remnants. Uh, it's really about moving an army out onto a map, developing the map, you know, like in an RTS, you build up your, your base and your resource gathering, and then defending and or fighting the other players. There's even this whole Rush Boom Turtle thing going on in City of Remnants. Um, City of Remnants, the sort of the, the underpinnings of it are a really slick uh, deck builder. And each of the four factions, very, very asymmetrical. Again, kind of like a real-time strategy game, like StarCraft, where each of the factions plays very differently. So, Plat Hat Games made City of Remnants. I really like that game a lot. Um, and one of the developers from City of Remnants, a fellow named Isaac Vega, went on to make a game called Dead of Winter, which Plat Hat has just released. Dead of Winter, Isaac co-designed, co-developed, co-made. Uh, the terminology with board games, I'm still sort of figuring out how that works, but uh, a co-creator with Isaac Vega of Dead of Winter, a fellow named John Gilmore. Uh, the head of Plat Hat Games is Colby 
Dosh, 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 Colby Dosh. I think I've got it right. Uh, I'm about to talk with all three of these fellows. Um, <laughs> I apologize in advance for the awful uh, highfalutin Great Gatsby reference I tried to make to Colby. That didn't seem to go anywhere. So uh, bear with me past that one, uh, and then we'll get into the interview proper. So uh, here from Plat Hat Games are Isaac Vega, John Gilmore, and Colby Dosh. Douch, douch, douch. Yeah. Uh, and I'll be back to talk to you a little bit after the interview. You'll say, I am married, we'll say no man. But you can do the job when you're in town. Later on, we'll uh, So, uh, Colby, first of all, uh, introducing each of the three of you. Uh, Colby, I don't know if you've ever been told this. You, amongst probably anyone whose name I'm ever, I have ever heard, are most likely to be mistaken for a character from The Great Gatsby, as far as your name goes. I don't know if you're... Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, so, you also, uh, you're, you're, uh, w- would you call yourself a, a, a founder of Plaid Hat? Like, I, I, I know that uh, when I hear about Plaid Hat, your name is often synonymous with the kind of work you do. Uh, so, what, t- tell me how, what's your role in bringing about Plaid Hat? Yeah, I would call myself the founder. Uh, Plaid Hat Games was formed when I designed Summoner Wars and wanted to put that on the market, and I knew I wanted to do more than one game and want to make a thing out of this, so I started Plaid Hat Games. Was that how long have you guys been around? That was in 2009. Oh my gosh, you guys are kids, basically. I I guess just because Summoner Wars is so big... I assumed you guys had been around for like 10 years or, or something, uh, but you're a very young company, I guess. Yeah, board games is a, is a kind of a young thing. And there, are, there are board games that stretch back, but board games as a big hobby mm-hmm. is still really young. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess, I guess yeah, it's, it's something that I presume uh, many of us have been doing for a long time, but it really probably has changed so much in the last five years while you guys have been around, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think Ticket to Ride is only 10 years old. That's crazy, because if you'd asked me, I would have totally said, yeah, Ticket to Ride is from the 90s. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, John Gilmore, you, I want to call out, as being, um, in a way, I think of you as the face of the company, because a lot of times when I'm on Board Game Geek, uh, talking about games and sort of sussing out the rules and other people's experiences, you've been so great about wading into conversations often with a very light touch, by the way, uh, on Board Game Geek about Dead of Winter, the game you guys just re- uh, released. Is that uh, an officially appointed thing? Do you just like those kind of conversations? Uh, why are you doing such a great job as a front man on Board Game Geek, John? Uh, I've, I've always really been involved in the board ge- uh, community. I mean, if you look at my account, you know, I've been very active for you know many years, not just on Dead of Winter, but lots of other games. Um, but, I mean, obviously, Dead of Winter is it's my baby, so you know, I enjoy answering questions and interacting with people on there. Mm-hmm. Well, you're, you're doing great work. I always appreciate it when I can go to talk about a game on Board Game Geek and have an official representative being super interactive with all of us asking what must sometimes be very annoying questions. So, Oh, no, not annoying at all. Well, that's very kind of you to say, but I know sometimes it probably takes patience to deal with some of us. So uh, a tip of the hat to you for that, John. Thank you. Uh, Isaac, uh, you, uh, I want to call out as your name, and Colby's, by the way, is on a game that I super love, and I don't know why... 
maybe this is one of these weird damning with faint praise things, but why isn't City of Remnants just super big? I love what you guys did with City <laughs> of Remnants, and it, it ties in so many different mechanics, and it does it so seamlessly. I kind of feel like everybody should know and be talking about City of Remnants. Well, thank you so much for the compliments. I mean, uh, City of Remnants was my first design um, that got published, and I still love it, and I still hope to work on it in the future, but um, City of Remnants suffers from growing pains that (laughs) not only that um, I had as a designer, but I think as uh, we had as a company just learning different things with every new product that we release um and there are definitely things that we could have done better on our ends and we hope to maybe revisit it in the future and uh have a lot of different things come out for it but uh that is later <laughs> well, plus I, I imagine you've had your hands full recently you've been probably yes. doing a lot of work with uh, the game that we're going to talk about today um so I'd like to actually open this up to all three of you. Uh, would one of you explain to me, uh, because uh, uh, John, your and Isaac's names are on Dead of Winter. Uh, Colby, I'm sure you, of course, were instrumental in creating this as well. Could one of you guys explain to me how the three of you work together, and actually how the company works together? Who shows up with an idea? How do you bounce it off each other? Describe for me the, the, the interworking relationship amongst you. Yeah, well... Um, <laughs> Uh, go ahead, Colby. Uh, so John is actually uh, not an employee of the company. Okay. John is a an inventor on Dead of Winter. Mm-hmm. So John has a game group that's a couple hours away from from our house, and Isaac met John, and, and I met John through uh, one of these game groups. And uh, Isaac and John developed a relationship, and John showed Isaac this game idea that he had for zombies and you have secret objectives and you're working on a main objective. And, uh, Isaac was really inspired by it in a number of ways and said, Hey, I've got some ideas for this. Do you want to co-design it? Uh-huh. And, uh, and at that time, Isaac was not an employee of the company either. And so they spent, uh, they spent quite a while just co-designing that game together. And, and they can speak more to that. Um, and then later, towards the end of the process of Dead of Winter, Isaac was brought on staff, and we, we wrapped Dead of Winter while he was on staff. As far as my role goes, I'm kind of funding the project. I'm bringing uh, the various pieces together, orchestrating them, and um, I tend to like write the rule books. Is a, is a remnant of things that I do. Uh, it, so different elements. I've got my I've got my my hands different, but the the heart of the game. Is comes from uh, John and Isaac. So, John, let me ask you, uh, you you had the kernel of the idea for this. Tell me a little bit about how it went from that idea that you presented to this fellow Isaac who you met in this gaming group um, to what you guys put together as a final product. Uh, tell me a bit about how it evolved, um, some of the things that might have changed, that might have fallen by the wayside, that might have been added. Give me a sort of a thumbnail of its evolution. Well, there, I mean, there were a lot of changes throughout that process. The, you know, the, the finished product, you know, only vaguely resembles that initial one, and that's generally how it goes with game design. Um, but originally, uh, you know, I presented it to Isaac. We we played through it at my game day, and uh, he asked if he could take it, uh, take my copy that I had with him, and then come back the next month with some changes. 
Mm-hmm. And then, you know, he went, he, uh, he did some changes, brought some of his ideas to it, brought it back the next month, and, you know, we played it and then started to, you know, go back and forth on things, things we liked about the changes, things we didn't like, and, uh, you know, try to refine those even further. Uh, we went through a pretty, pretty lengthy development process. We have, uh, we're not exactly sure of the timeline, but, I mean, it's been quite a while, and we went through a lot of different revisions um, before we even, you know, presented it to Colby for the first time at Gen Con, I think maybe three years ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we, we had worked on it quite a bit and went through a lot of revisions. So um, in those years, in the intervening years, in the, in the years previous, uh, I imagine part of the design process is uh, this vague sense that maybe something doesn't work, and maybe you should try something new. And then you try something new, and maybe it does or doesn't work, but sometimes you try something new, and there's an aha, like a eureka moment, and it just feels like it fits perfectly, and it's kind of a revelation. Um, can each of the three of you tell me about one of those aha moments that happened during the development of Dead of Winter, where something fell into place and just felt perfect. And John, since it was originally something that you you brought out, uh, can you think of something like that? Um, yeah, I think uh, from the start, one of the big things for me was having the the search decks be very specific to each location. I wanted you know all the different locations that the players could visit, feel, and have their own personality. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, you know, they went through from some small revisions, but you know that was something that to me was very important and felt right uh, right from the start. Um, there's another one, but I just going to say it, so I don't want to take it. That, that is, I, I love hearing you say that, John, because that's one of the things I really like about the game is how different it feels and the different reasons that you would go to the police station versus the grocery store versus the gas station. Uh, one of the crucial things to me in good board game design is a place. It has a sense of place, like locations that mm-hmm. matter in unique ways. Uh, and, yeah, so I can imagine how it certainly is a player. Very gratifying to me what you did with the specific reasons to search specific decks and how they give locations personality. Uh, Thank you. Isaac, since uh, it seems that John knows what you're going to say, what would be your aha <laughs> moment in the development process? Well, definitely during the development there was uh, always this – this feeling of there's just not something's just not right and it being my uh, third game design there had been so many there, there had been so many things that I learned from the previous two designs that um, I was able to implement into Dead of Winter and right near the end of development right when we, we thought oh this is ready for production you know I had just this gnawing feeling at the pit of my stomach <laughs> that just it's not right it's not ready it's it needs something else and um I had called together like a whole bunch of our friends um at Colby's house one day in order to just like hey we are going to play the game all day long there's something wrong with it we <laughs> find out what it is you know and I pretty much sat there and watched people's reactions and watched and heard their opinions and everything and went away for a little bit and came back with what is now crossword cards um, and that that as soon as I you know showed them the first you know kernel of the idea of how crossword cards would work it was just like a spark of awesomeness it went so so well and from that point on the game just started singing and it is something that i think you know is really going to be 
is the defining factor of the series and what we hope to continue on through and something that we really, really, really are excited about moving forward with in the Crossroads series. So I do want to pause here, and and Colby, you're not off the hook yet. I still want to hear about one of your favorite aha moments during the process. But I do want to talk about these Crossroads cards because – Part of my uh, – so I, I've seen players, and I've probably played Dead of Winter 10, 12 times uh, with, with different sizes of groups um, and different types of players. Um, and I'm delighted, by the way, with how uh, how widely it appeals to different people in our group. You know, I imagine like any gaming group, we have very definite types, and uh, I've been I've just been really happy bringing Dead of Winter to all of these different types in the group. But one of the amongst the, the reactions I've gotten to the Crossroads cards, some of them are, it adds too much randomness. You know, is this this game is almost like this cool survival puzzle. We need to figure it out, but it throws a lot of randomness into the game. Uh, but I, th- you know, that can of course be an asset. You know, there's nothing wrong with randomness, especially you know, a game has dice. It's got randomness. It's got decks of cards. There's going to be randomness. But more important than the pluses or minuses of whether or not randomness is good. What I love about the Crossroads cards is they keep busy the player who just ended his turn. You know, part of the importance of a a board game is pacing. So in a five-player game, for instance, when my turn is over, I'm going to have to wait through four more player turns before I have something that I have to actively do. But with Crossroads cards, now I have something to do immediately after my turn, so I only have to wait three player turns. And if there are four players, it's that much. So... You know, again, you, you have a limit of five players, which I presume also helps pacing, but I'm mm-hmm. guessing that for you guys as a whole, and for this aha moment for you, Isaac, things like pacing and player engagement are, are, are very important. Uh, yes, and that was something that the game was suffering from um, prior to the crossword cards. It was another It was another thing that I could use in order to engage players when it wasn't their turn. Mm-hmm. And that's... Go ahead. I recall this quite well. You, one of the the problem we were currently having was a certain player or a couple of players feeling like there was too much downtime, and we were playing a six-player game at at the time. One of the things we did was limited at five, but Isaac had had specifically gone off to figure out at, at what could people do when it's not their turn, and he comes back and says, "You know, what did you do when it wasn't your turn? You had a card, and on the card." It says, and, and he had written one up that was basically like, if you move and then, you know, the snow starts falling, a blizzard, and there's a horde, and and uh, everybody lit up. And it was so interesting to me that he went to solve one problem and came back with, the, with like one of the very sole pieces of the game. And, and the foundation for the series. I love how you're calling this the Crossroads <laughs> series. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yes. Right. Uh, so I, I wonder too the crossroads cards. Uh, I like the variety in them, and that some of them are just declarative, like "Hey, you don't have an option. We're doing this." Some of them are "Hey, you, the player, get to make a choice," and some of them are "Hey, the whole group gets to vote." Um, so even in the discovery of like what kind of crossroads cards might happen, like they're never always the same thing. Uh, you know, they they all they add different kinds of dynamics at different times, um, and in fact. I had a great five-player game last night. Uh, we were doing one of my favorite scenarios, which is the one where you have to survive for eight rounds, and there's no telling what's going to happen, what kind of problems are going to come up during those eight rounds. It's kind of an endurance slog in, in a good sense of the word. Like, you've just got to endure. Um, and we lost by one 
morale point. You know, we were going to oh. end the turn. We lost by one morale, and someone <laughs> earlier in the game had this crossroads card. And some of these you start to recognize because they happen more frequently. We had the crossroads card where someone has found a church, and he can either take the sacrament wine and fight the priest for it and risk exposure, or and you get morale from that wine, or he can just walk on and not risk the exposure. And he decided not to do that. And we all remembered when we lost the game by one morale <laughs> point at the very end that that jerk left the sacrament wine that would have won the game for us. Uh, and that's something that, you know, it's, it takes the kind of the randomness of the crossroad cards to introduce that sort of narrative. Uh, right. And from the beginning of the development, um, it was something that was very important to me and John to make players feel like they were survivors in this situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and even with randomness and even with things coming up, I mean, the exposure die is another thing that people say, oh, God, it's random. But it really does make you feel like you're in a state of you don't know what's going to happen next. You know, and the danger that comes out of that and the decisions that you have to make being more critical in those uh, in those situations, I think, is what really makes the game shine. Isaac, I would even go uh, one further than that and say the exposure mechanic and, and specifically the the instant death if you roll the tooth and the infection mechanic that can completely wipe out a location, those are integral to, to zombie mythology. You know, mm-hmm. in, in zombie mythology, nobody's safe. Anybody can die. You can think of zombies as a metaphor for death. We're all vulnerable to it. But in zombie mythology, no character should ever be safe. And furthermore, there's this concept of infection. Again, zombies can be a metaphor for, for cancer or mass hysteria or, uh, you know, and, and, and so few games, and not just board games, computer games, games of any genre, have a hard time with both the, the sudden unexpected death that can happen and the infection mechanic. So I think that, that one little red die that ships with the game uh, works absolute wonders. Um, mm-hmm. Now, do you guys get complaints? Um, You mentioned some people uh, talk about the brutality of the infection die. Uh, I just mentioned some of my friends were complaining about the randomness of the the Crossroads deck. Uh, Before we get to Colby's aha moment during the development, do you guys get uh, complaints that you're surprised about from some players? Not really surprised, (laughs) actually. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, at this point... We get our feedback from the internet, and so we, you, know, you, ex- you expect that there's a certain sense of, this is not going to float everybody's boat. Sure. We are a company that makes games that have dice in them. That's, that is, I mean, we have a die on our logo. Uh, it's part of our DNA. And so we have heard the complaint before that, oh, this game stinks, it's too random, you're just rolling dice. And so getting that complaint no longer really phases us. We just, uh, I mean, I shouldn't say that because it's not true of me. And maybe it's true of some of the others. But for me, every time I get, I hear a complaint, it, it, it affects me. Like, because that was a customer that bought our game that then wasn't happy with it. And I feel a sense of responsibility to people who bought our games. I want them to have a good time. And uh, the only way to really do that I feel is to have a DNA as a company. To have part of your company is this, this philosophy, this type of game, and uh, and the better you communicate that, the less chances that somebody's going to find one of your games and be disappointed in it. Um, but 
so so I, I feel a sense of responsibility there, but um, it, it's it's not a surprise. It's it's something that that we expect. We know that there are going to be people that get our games that uh, are, they're not going to be just right for them. Now you you guys for the most part, um, and maybe it's just my perception because I was super eager to play this game. I love zombie mythology. I really loved what you and Isaac did with City of Remnants. Um, I, I think I was part of this like. It, it felt like there was this this fevered pitch waiting for the game that I don't really know exists with other board games. Uh, do you guys have this awareness that there was this huge anticipation for for Dead of Winter? Um, that, that's that's accurate to say, isn't it? Really? Like I heard, let me let me say real quick. By the way, I heard about the lines at JidCon. Yes, uh, I don't well, think any board yeah. games can lay claim to that. It, it really wasn't until Gen Con that we actually knew what this game could be. I mean, we always hear you know anticipation and people people saying, "Oh, I can't wait till that comes out." And you know, we had a good amount of pre-orders. I mean, the most pre-orders that we'd ever had. But I mean, we really didn't know the amount that these people uh, people wanted the game and Gen Con really was the first kind of like whoa <laughs> you know the buzz is actually real <laughs> you right. know because there's so, there's so many I mean our industry is there's so much there's so many people that we know and there's so many people that you know tight knit group you don't know if it's just like the same people saying right. the same thing over and over again so it wasn't until Gen Con that it's like oh we're got we're done with 400 and 450 copies in two and a half hours. So that's what I happened. People like this game. You guys <laughs> showed up with 450 copies and they got snapped up super quick. That's what happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and were there three and a half hours? Were there game demos as well? Were, were, at Gen Con, you were also, I presume, showing off the game, right? Yeah, we had flyers. Yeah, we had flyers made up and, it, and demos going. Uh, it, it, the, the thing is, like, you know, it took us to Gen Con to realize it. It's because you don't want to, you don't necessarily, you have to doubt yourself the whole time. Mm-hmm. The whole time you find yourself doubting yourself because it's, you live in this bubble. You know, there, there are so many billions of people that don't know what your game is or that you exist as a company. And most of the people who play board games don't know we exist as a company. Uh, and and that, that sounds inaccurate, but it, it absolutely is accurate. And it only sounds inaccurate because. We're in a bubble where we're super into board games and we know all the stuff that's going on. And so, because you know you live in that bubble, you you're constantly like questioning, it, like, well, is this is this this way because you know I, I don't have perspective yet because <laughs> it feels like it's going to be really hot, but maybe that's just a lack of perspective. And then Gen Con and being there in the physical appearance of a, a sprinting line uh, was was like okay. <laughs> All right, we got something here. Uh, so, Colby, uh, then during the development process, what was a moment for you? Uh, and granted, you were involved in a very different way than John and Isaac, but but watching and and with the role that you played with the game, what was a moment where something fell into place for you that was uh, a eureka moment? I think for me with this one, it was kind of watching Isaac develop uh, as a board game designer and and. and Watching the game simplify, so okay. there was a lot of there were a lot of elements of that were part of the game that didn't survive to the end, and all those elements were an effort to make you feel the theme. But at each time something was simplified, 
it was always better. It, and it, you know, trying to trying to just take it down to just what it needs. And then when those crossroads cards came in and infused it with all that theme, and you didn't need a lot of the other stuff, watching um, the the travel bike go from a deck of cards that could do a bunch of different stuff to that cool red tactile die, uh, you know, things like that that just simplified over the process. It used to be that the crisis and there was there was a separate deck besides the crisis that came up every round as well that had you like committing dice to it um you know just watching those things fall away and just the you know the the best parts of the game shine as a result of getting rid of the fat Mm -hmm. and i can imagine that those are a bunch of aha moments throughout the process and and that that can't be easy because as a creator and i say this as a writer i'm sure that that isaac you and and john feel it as creators and you Colby as well when you make something you get attached to it and it's hard to realize that maybe what you're making might be better with less of what you've made uh so yeah um yeah editing down is probably the biggest thing i've mm -hmm. learned Mm -hmm. uh as being a designer and developing as a designer it's it's absolutely crucial to making your game good Mm mm-hmm Let's get down to some of the nitty-gritty here, because there's very specific things I want to talk about. Uh, Colby mentioned that awesome red die. We've mentioned that a couple of times. Uh, Anytime you, not anytime, but if you move and if you fight, there's basically a 1 in 12 chance your guy is instantly dead. Uh, One of the things that I really like about the game, and that I love when I explain the game, because I'm super into teaching games, and I love getting a new game and kind of considering the rules and thinking how best to teach these people rules. So one of the things I love teaching people in this game is, here's an exposure die, you've got a 1 in 12 chance of you're dead and there's nothing you can do about, about it, and that's it, it's that brutal. And watching them sort of disbelieve that, (laughs) <laughs> and then going back and kind of sugarcoating it and saying, that's not entirely true. There are ways you can mitigate it because here's how weapons work and here's what fuel does when you move. So there's this brutality there, but it's also a resource sink kind of. So, so tell me specifically about tuning that red die. Well, um, like Kobe had said, that the red die was actually used to be a deck. Mm-hmm. And it used to be something that people could go ahead and game um they knew oh okay well if a bite bite came up now there ah. now there's this many bites left or there's this many things that aren't, aren't going to happen to me you know um and that was something that i hated i was, <laughs> I was just like it, it was is totally totally for the meta gamers and i was just like absolutely not that's that's something that can't happen and didn't that deck used to have more than just just the the three results that we have now in it. It had a, little, time it it had a lot of that out. Yeah, it had a little bit of other results near the end. It was just the three, um, but but it was just it was just something that was just like you can't you can't anticipate what's going to happen to you in a, a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh well, three people got bitten. That means no no one else is going to get bitten. <laughs> Nobody's getting bit today. <laughs> Uh, Isaac, so, this makes me think of I, I don't know uh, if if you guys will know the specific uh, board game, but there's a board game based on the Firefly series uh, called Firefly, <laughs> suitably enough, and they have a movement deck. 
where as you move through space, you're drawing cards, and most of the cards are non-events. I imagine you guys might have had something similar. But what happens in the Firefly game is one of the cards is a super bad effect that will mess you up, and then it reshuffles the deck. So a lot of times, as the deck is getting smaller and smaller, you're realizing that that's becoming more and more inevitable. Now, in a zombie apocalypse game, where part of the mythology is sudden death that you have no say in... Right. I can see how that would be bad, but in a game about navigating space and taking risks, and you're flying a ship that has probably a computer and maps and stuff, counting that deck is a cool dynamic. But yeah, in yeah. a zombie apocalypse, it's just a roll of the die whether or not you're going to get killed when you're <laughs> right. going to the school to look for food. Yeah. Well, in the great yeah, thing about the die. Really... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, John. I mean, the great thing about the die is you know we worked out the math and it came out to exactly the same probability. You know, except for that it wasn't diminishing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Um. I, I, think you hit the, I think you hit the nail on the head with the aha moments, and the aha moments tie into what you're saying about, well, in Firefly, this really works. In Dead of Winter, this really works. It's about matching up the right thing to the right you know, mechanism and it feeling right, and, and that's when you get your aha moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, real quick, because there's so much great theming in this, uh, I want each of you to tell me briefly what your credentials are as far as like being into zombie mythology. Is it something you're really into? Is there like a movie that you love? Uh, real quickly, how important is zombie stuff to, for instance, you, John? You you came up with this idea. Are, are you like a zombie movie junkie or what? I, I am probably going to be the guy that's most into it out of the three of us. Um, <laughs> I grew up watching zombie movies, the you know the Italian Fulci movies, the Romero. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. I read Walking Dead from issue one. Uh, just because I saw Robert Kirkman was involved with it, you know, the Zombie Survival Guide uh, by Matt Brooks, World War Z. You know, I read tons of books. I mean, I've always been a huge fan of it because of the, you know, there's a lot of metaphors with zombies and a lot of uh, things that run deeper with them. And I've always found them to be one of the most terrifying monsters, just because, you know, they they are unending and there is no beating them. They are also our generation's monsters. You know, we invented mm-hmm. them. They're not like goofy vampires that have been through several incarnations and have to be reinvented over different centuries. Uh, they're stuff that we made up. They're they're a, a product of our minds as, as a generation. Yeah, uh, Colby, how much of a zombie junkie are you? I would I would say Walking Dead. Uh, I, I I jumped on an issue one of Walking Dead. I would say I had a whole lot of of zombie fever before that mm-hmm. okay uh I, I didn't really i didn't really wasn't exposed to him for that but but i was there early on for walking dead and um and read those uh all the way through and and would say that was one of my uh primary inspirations and then in the walking dead video games i love the telltale walking dead oh, video yeah. games I can sort of um, see that not necessarily direct influence but that the the character driven you know the idea that um the zombies aren't always the biggest threat. I mean, that's clearly also one of the, the huge things that, that sets uh, Dawn of Winter, uh, Dead of Winter, uh, apart from other zombie games, is you can play some games and the zombies are no big deal. It's the food that gets you, for instance. Mm-hmm. And that's very much like Walking Dead. It's, yeah. yeah. I, I really, uh, I, I got pretty heavy into Left 4 Dead. Me and my buddies played a whole lot of Left 4 Dead when that came out. Mm-hmm. Uh uh, and and I think that's what a lot of the zombie board games tend to emulate is more right. that end of things. Like right. there's a bunch of zombies and we're blowing their heads off and we're awesome. And uh, and that's and that's cool. And board games know how to do that 
well. Uh, but I think the thing that's interesting with Dead of Winter is uh, the things that board games can do that video games can't are that human element. And that's some of our favorite parts about zombie fiction. And marrying those two, I think, gives zombie fans the zombie board game that maybe they've been wishing for. And uh, you guys also, uh, and this is a completely different kind of theming and something that probably a video game could never do, in, again, the game that we played last night where we were going to have to survive for eight turns, and we begin with their five players, so there are five of those stupid helpless survivors on the board, which everybody hates, uh, <laughs> but, but we got one of these, this, a card where we could kick them all out and just take an early morale hit. And we were split halfway. You know, one of the people didn't have anyone at the colony, so he couldn't vote. There were two people, me, and who turned out to be the betrayer, who really felt this early on, we should kick everyone out and take the morale hit. It'll help us in the long run. But there were two other people who felt, no, that's crazy. We can't take a morale hit this early. You're, you're getting us killed. And we sat there and had this fantastic, immersive, completely thematic, and everybody was invested kind of argument for five yeah. minutes. <laughs> and, and furthermore, the argument didn't resolve. It came down to who had the knife, who broke ties. Like, we didn't... <laughs> We, we couldn't settle it. We just, it just, you know, we brute forced, chose the vote that we wanted, and the other two were just l- left out in the cold because they didn't have a say in the matter. Um, <laughs> and again, that's, you know, that's something you're not going to get in Left for Dead, for instance. You can, you can right. headshot a thousand zombies in Left for Dead, and you will never get that moment, which is straight out of a, R- a Romero movie or straight out of Walking Dead. Yeah. Uh, Isaac, what's your uh, so John comes to you and he's got this cool zombie game. Are you totally into the zombie thing? Are you like, well, it's a zombie game, but I'll look at it. Where were you with zombies when you first started working with John on this? Well, the thing is, is that I, I'm I'm more in the camp of where Colby is, but even less so because I didn't I didn't read the Walking Dead series. Mm-hmm. I've read uh, I've read most of World War Z uh, um, World uh, War is. War Z, Z War? What's uh, World, World, World War Z. Z. <laughs> yep, yep. I was right yeah, the first time. I don't know why I got confused. <laughs> <laughs> um, but really, it wasn't. It wasn't about um, the zombies that really got me into what John had going on. It was more about the fact of all the other zombie games that existed <laughs> and um, the zombie games that I had played in the past, and how I was just like this. Those games didn't really <laughs> say zombie to me i mean mm-hmm. to me walking dead the series was zombies you know what i mean a world war z was zombies it was people it was drama it was what was going on in those people's heads and how they were affecting each other and i love a good series i'm like upset i, I love game of thrones and I, I was totally into lost when it was good <laughs> um and these people thrown into these situations and what's going on with them what are they trying to do how are they going to get through it and you know they're with these people that they don't know they don't trust and they've never met before in their lives and how are they going to survive together you know, and that's really what captured me um, and what I want to bring out not only in Dead of Winter, which I think we accomplished in that theme, but also as we continue on in the Crossroads series of throwing people into these other situations and what will come out of that? What kind of stories, what kind of interactions, what kind of what kind of drama, what kind of laughs, what kind of things can happen in those kind of situations and how can we bring that out? 
of an interesting, mechanically interesting game, but also something that creates great interaction amongst the people that are playing. So that, that this is one of my favorite. Ahead, Sorry, this is one of my favorite parts about Isaac as a game designer. You mentioned like he he all the other zombie games where his his impetus behind designing a zombie game. He does this a lot where he plays the game and hates it and says, I'm going to design that game. Uh, it's, it's like his impetus for designing games is so often having played a game that he didn't like. Uh, is, like he, he hates Betrayal at the House on the Hill and, and uh, Arabian uh, Tales of Arabian Nights, but had he not played them, the inspiration for crossroad cards may have not struck him. Right, <laughs> absolutely true. And I tell Colby to let me like Colby even told me when uh, Tales of Arabian Nights when I asked him to play. Oh, he's like, you are not going to like that game. There is no re- <laughs> you're going to absolutely hate it. It's totally not your thing. And I was like, no, I want to play it. There's a reason that people like this game, and I'm going to figure out why. <laughs> uh, to hear you guys say that, it makes me think that. Um, one of the things that I'm constantly surprised about when I talk to game developers, whether they're video game developers or sometimes board game developers, is how little they play other games. Uh, and I think, for instance, as a writer, the best way you can become a writer is to read a lot of books. The best way you can become a game designer, play a lot of games. Uh, so I, I, I'm not the least bit surprised to hear that the guys who made City of Remnants, Summoner Wars, uh, Dead of Winter have played a lot of games, even ones they don't like. Uh, yeah. So, so uh, uh, Isaac, you mentioned um, you mentioned Lost, for instance, and this idea of people thrown into a survival situation together, what are they going to do? Uh, the, a fundamental part of the identity of Dead of Winter, and aside from me being a super zombie fan, you know, I love the mythology, uh, I... I don't like pure co-op games. If there's a pure co-op game that I could play by myself solitaire, I'd just as soon do that. I need some kind of competition or a hidden trader mechanic going on in my cooperative game. Um, you guys have made, um, and I've, I've thought about it, and it's kind of hard to explain to people too when I'm teaching them the game, but I feel like you've kind of made a co-op game where everybody is also a trader because everybody has this secret objective. Everybody has a secret, something they want to do that they can't tell anybody about that is going against the grain of the cooperative survival mechanic that is somehow almost always going to detract from everybody else's chance of success. So I I want uh, any of you guys to talk about introducing and tuning this concept of simultaneous cooperation and competition, trust and betrayal, uh, help and obstructionism. Uh, well, well, Tom, I, I hate co-ops too. <laughs> <laughs> and, that's, and that's exactly what I was looking for. If I'm going to make something where we're all working together, hmm? I also want to feel like I'm playing a game where I have a say, where I have a choice to go against the grain. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like co-ops suffer so much from that one player that either thinks they know or does know <laughs> the optimal move to every single uh, every single thing that everybody's doing and it just it, it disturbs me so much that I'm just like why are we playing why don't you just go and play by yourself <laughs> <laughs> and that I wanted to be able to bring that kind of discussion that 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 drama that happens in real life that that push and pull in between people that that 
would be realistic in these kind of situations. And it's like, okay, everybody's just going to get along and everything's going to work out fine. No, that's not how these kind of things work. And I think I think that's what what um, what inspired that you know those kind of uh, different things that people can go ahead and decide and those little quirks that they have that pull each other against uh, pull everybody against each other and the fact that. I don't like co-ops. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, a, that alpha gamer who normally ruins things kind of plays right into our script with Dead of Winter. Like, go ahead and try to alpha game. Everybody doesn't trust you, right. and, and it, <laughs> it, it, it just works. He's the, he's, the, he's the guy that thinks he's the leader, but nobody likes him. <laughs> um, did it always have this idea where, like, did you experiment with the idea that, okay, everybody's trying to win, and there's maybe one betrayer? Did all one did did everyone always have a secret objective that they would lose if they didn't accomplish? In John's yeah. original concept, um, there was there was a everybody had a betrayal. Is that correct, John? Yeah, yeah. Everybody had a public betrayal that they could do. So you knew that guy over there is a junkie, and if we let him collect too much medicine, he can just abandon everybody and stress all over. And then only he would win. Was that the original idea? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, so what ended uh, up happening in John's version of the game is that everybody decided to betray. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can definitely yeah. imagine that. Is why am I going to help the group win if I can just win on my own? Yeah. Right, exactly. And uh, what I brought to it was making those making things secret. And that that iteration was so much development. That was probably one of the hardest things to figure out because originally we had so many different types of way, ways that that worked and having different scaling and people had three different secret objectives and it was just bloated <laughs> and crazy. Um, but it ended up being really nice and uh, much simpler having, having that, you know, this is you, this is, this is how you are influencing your group and this is how you're pushing people in a certain direction because of your quirk and what you're trying to get done and this is your goal while you're here with these other people that have completely different goals than you. And how does that work and how does that mesh together and how do you guys work together even though you're so different? Is it intentional that some of them seem more crazily difficult than others? It is intentional that they're not going to be necessarily easier in every situation. I guess it is is, is situational. You know, I mean, there's going to be the main objective where – you know, we need to collect so much medicine in order to win the game, and there's somebody that's hoarding a whole bunch of medicine, and um, and that might be the case in some games and in other games not, and that's what creates interesting stories, and that's what creates interesting people mm-hmm. in those kind of situations, and and kind of has that push and pull um, from game to game. Um, some secret objectives aren't necessarily going to be the best in certain in certain scenarios, um, and some are going to be harder, some are going to be easier, but that's what I think makes great story moments. Mm-hmm. Now, now in the rule, like when two okay. secret objectives both want the same thing, when two secret objectives both want the same thing, then you don't know that, that other person's been working against you, and you've been working against each other all game. Stuff like that happens. It makes it tougher, but it also tells a story. We, in fact, we we put a section in the rule book that talks about like not everything's going to be fair, like. Right. The guy to your right might have an easier secret objective. It might be, you know, it might be that, you know, barricades are tougher to build in this scenario because we're drawing in more zombies because we have more people. It, it, I mean, you got, you got to deal with it. <laughs> you know, right. you just, and, and that's why we put it in the rule book to hopefully 
you know, set expectations. Again, uh, you know, setting expectations is important to us. One of my favorite moments in any game of, of uh, Dead of Winter is at the very end, whether you've won or lost, everybody turning over their card and these these discoveries like, oh, that's why you did that three turns ago, or oh, that's why you went to the library when we needed food, or oh, that's why you wouldn't give me the gun. Um, like like where 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 these these secrets are outed, and suddenly certain motives become clear, uh, and you kind of realize how easy or difficult some people had it. Um, I love that that sense of revelation and discovery when the game is over. Um, yeah. Now, something that I've uh, J- John has been hugely great on the forum, and this is one of the early things that uh, I think he and I maybe exchanged a few messages about. Um, and and it seems the idea in the rule book is don't say anything to disclose your uh, your, your secret objective. Of course, is that it needs to remain secret. Um, one of the things that I've kind of had problems with in that. A lot of players have questions when I teach them the game, and I just kind of have to say, look, you can't say anything, um, is that some players will want to, like, deal or finesse things or set up a situation where they kind of imply what their objective is, and they use that as leverage to help everybody win. Um, there's, there's, for me, this kind of difficult tension between don't say anything and maybe try to imply certain things. Um, was that an issue for you guys developing the game? Uh, and do you find it something that might need some clarification going forward? Are you okay with it being kind of vague and letting different groups adapt differently to, to this thing? Uh, how, how do you feel about that? I think the last one was on the nose. I think I, I think it's got to be a little vague. I think different groups will find a different groove with this. Mm-hmm. Um, John, what was your original intention there? I mean, you know, I I think I agree that you know each one each group's going to kind of find their own, and they have to be aware that you know if you're if you're going to talk about it, that the betrayer can say whatever he wants. I mean, yeah, obviously, you know, there was a, there's a 27 page thread on BGG about claiming your role and, hmm. you know, how the, the original poster wondered if it broke the game. And it doesn't because, you know, nobody's going to say they're the betrayer. You know, I'm going to say, well, oh, I need to go get all this medicine to win the game. And the other players shouldn't really care. You know, if I say I want all this medicine and we need medicine, does the group need it more than I do? Hmm. Yeah, because we're going to lose if, if I don't give it up. You know, so if I tell anybody what my goal is in any in any aspect... I'm just opening myself up to somebody, you know, the other players just attacking my character to take all my medicine from me. And what's interesting about that of Winter 2 is that it creates people that don't normally get into role-playing games and makes them feel like their role, but it Mm -hmm. it shines even more when people are already, like, into their role and understand how role-playing works. I think one of the greatest uh, inventions and uh, little things that were added to the game that we never even asked for was when Rodney did his Watch It Played series, and he had <laughs> he had uh, a little story at the beginning of the game as to how his characters and his group came together and <laughs> what their story was before they came to the colony. And I think that was absolutely great and a great addition because it just immerses you even more into what's going on in the game. Mm-hmm. And I think the people that really embrace that, that really like, this is my secret. This is what, you know, this is, this is something that I don't want to share with anybody. This is something that I have to accomplish or it means my downfall. It means my death. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it really shines for those people. 
Yeah, I only play it that way now. I mean, not, every time I play, and we play it quite a bit with my group still, you know, we always have to tell that story at the beginning just because it sets everything up so well. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the, I, I tend to approach the game more as kind of a system. Um, and I do love the theming, and I love the personality. But one of the things that I, as a system, that I kind of want to solve where I'm sitting around with some of my friends is when I get to the point where I've achieved my special objective, like I need two books or whatever, and I've got the two books, and they're in my hand, and then I, now I'm doing my part to make sure that the colony gets to the victory objective. But one of the things that I want to do is help the other people finish their objectives. I kind of feel like, okay, I'm going to win this if we can all get there. And in the process of helping us get there, how can I help you guys with your objectives? You know, who needs medicine? And and I feel like you guys don't want me to be able to do that because I can't just give someone a medicine card. You mm-hmm. know, I can give it, but they right. have to use it. Uh, and and we right. there have been times where I'm trying to sort of think out, well, how can I help someone? But I realize, wait a minute, there, the rules are kind of throwing up a roadblock here. I, I can't really do much to, like, give somebody cards to hoard. You know, maybe I could give them extra survivors and stuff. But it, it feels like you really, really want us to, to play these close to the chest and not to be collaborative with those special objectives. Well, yeah, I mean, it, you know, if you were in that situation and, uh, you know, the guy next to you was like, well, I'm a junkie, you wouldn't be like, well, I'm going to go get you a bunch of medicine. No problem, buddy. <laughs> well, there, there are some enablers like that, John, but point well, yeah, taken. <laughs> point taken. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, once usually, like when I play, once I've got my secret objective, if I get that done, you know, by the halfway point or near it, you know, then I just try to take up more of the overall burden so that other people can focus on theirs. Oh, like almost a catch-up mechanic kind of thing. Yeah. Right, right. sure, sure. Yeah, because, I mean, that's one of the big parts of the game is that give and take of, you know, do I work on my secret objectives now? Do I ignore them because we need this stuff? Or can I work on them both at the same time? Right. Yeah, who's going to clean out the waste? He cleans a lot of poop. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, let, let's talk about some of the characters, uh, because for the most part, they fit really neatly into the overall system. You know, you talk about cleaning up poop. There's Brandon Keough, the, the, the janitor in there who gets rid of five cards. There's certain characters who are better for searching certain locations. There's some great combat characters. Uh, some of them, however, are, are borderline just, just nuts. I'm like, what, what were you guys thinking with this? Uh, t- tell me about... How your group, how you guys play Talia, who's the fortune uh, seer, the, the fortune teller, who can look at two cards. And by the way, oh my god, games without her hurt so much more than games with her. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you've got this weird little thing about she can only say two words. So what our group has done is she just says the names of the, the necessary resources on the next two cards. Uh, have you seen any other clever uses of the limitation on Talia, or, or how do you guys use her? I think my favorite two words that have ever come up uh, in a game instead of winner using Talia is, we're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> I guess sometimes editorialize, yeah. <laughs> I think what we wanted to avoid there was, okay, so I looked at the two cards, I put this one on the bottom, this is on the top, and it's, it's like one that's eating up time. I'm explaining exactly everything, and that's not how, and that's not that's not how that grifter works. She's got to keep it mysterious, right. so you believe that there's a mystic, mystical element to to the fact <laughs> that she knows this stuff, um, and and she does that by you know, 
rolling her eyes back in her head and, and chanting a couple of words. Right, right. And it offers the betrayer a, cl- a clever way to claim ignorance uh, if they have Talia under them, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, having Talia as the betrayer is fantastic because Wait, you can, how, how you that, can yeah, put the worst ones on top. Oh, and then just pretend that, look, it's the best I could do. Ah, yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, like I got two foods. Sorry, guys. <sighs> nice. Yeah, okay. and... Um, <laughs> They're they're doing a play by forum game right now on BGG, and I don't know if anybody else has been watching it, but they're doing a really great job of role playing everything and really building up this incredible story. And Talia is or Talia was in the game. I haven't checked it in a couple days. Um, now, now, some of the other kind of borderline nuts characters that I'm like, oh my god, really? This character gets to do this? Uh, uh, and I actually ended up with two of them in one game. Uh, in one game, I had both Greybeard and uh, I think her name is Annalie Chan, the, the lawyer chick. Um, uh-huh. And Greybeard can just steal someone's card. Uh, Annalie can just look at a card. So at first, I was like, well, wait, if I'm not the betrayer, why would I want to do this terrible thing to the other players? But I found myself doing it to try to, like, out a betrayer. <laughs> or, or I would, or I was doing, like, the person, like, in that game, I needed two books. So the person who was searching the library, I was stealing stuff from him to try to get my books. <laughs> And then yep. afterwards, I apologized, and I was like, look, I needed books, that, and you were at the library, sorry, that that way. <laughs> but then there was the things that, in this game, we had, uh, someone was exiled, and she was trying to steal, trying to take, she knew we needed food, and she was sitting on the, the grocery store, getting all the food from us. So Greybeard <laughs> was, like, getting the food from her. Um, but then there are games, too, with Greybeard, where you apologetically take somebody's card, and you're like, look, I'll give it back. Just on your turn, say you need it, and I'll give it back to you. Um, um, so I, I kind of almost wish there had been more players that just did crazy, potentially game-bending or breaking things like that. And I can only imagine, especially with what you said, Colby, about streamlining, you guys must have had some bonkers ideas that you floated as far as character powers, yeah? I'm trying, I'm trying to think Actually, of one. Actually, um, a lot of the characters stayed pretty much the same uh, throughout the Yeah, process. they were mostly I mean, small tweets. They were, there, was a, there was little adjusting where certain people were a little bit more broken than others, but a lot of the, a lot of the characters stayed the same. I mean, really, really, it was like, okay, we need 30 abilities <laughs> for these characters. Let's figure out a way to make 30 abilities. And, you know, we hope to explore... Um, the game a little bit more um, in expansions and add more characters and more abilities. So you might see more of that uh, coming out um, as well. So was the student a headache to tune or balance? Because like, I can I can imagine that's one where there are all sorts of cool possibilities I haven't even imagined yet. Because yeah, a student and he <laughs> imitates someone else's power, so you basically mm-hmm. double up a power at any non-colony location. Uh, yeah, he's definitely yeah. A, power, a powerful character, and he has a lot of cool uh, combo things that he can definitely do. But um, I also feel like he's really thematic. He's like people's sidekick, you know, uh, learning learning from the older, wiser survivors that are trying to teach him how to do these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so finally I want to uh, bring up, because uh, you, you mentioned this, uh, I think, John, this was your pick for an aha moment, um, that the item decks... Uh, of course, the contents of them vary by location, and you give a, a cool little indicator at the top of each location from most common to least common what types of items you'll find at each location. Um, uh, 
But each location, I think, is it 20 or 25? I think it has 20 cards. 20. Yep. And you always know exactly what you're going to find and where you're going to find it. Maybe not where in the deck it is, but if you deplete a deck, you know what's going to be in there after a few playthroughs. You know, there's always going to be six food at the grocery store. The police station, it's always going to have those two sniper rifles, the two shotguns, the two pistols, um, the, lighters, <laughs> the lighters at the gas station, for instance. You have a better memory than me. I couldn't have told you any of that. And I, and I, I probably played a hundred times. <laughs> Well, well, actually, that's funny, Colby, because I, I wonder if it's, you know, I mentioned that I kind of approach games a lot of times as systems, and, and you guys, some of you have been talking about, like, like role-playing here. Uh, I've been looking at these decks of cards as, as a system, and uh, there's almost, for me, this puzzle-style challenge of knowing where things are and proceeding accordingly, um, and, and also not to mention... And, and this is almost like a separate topic, but how the cards feed into things like attempts to sabotage crises because they're labeled with where they came from. You know, the, mm-hmm. where you get a card can be hugely important in terms of what you can do with it if you're a betrayer, for instance. Um, but one of the, so one of the players in our group, uh, her complaint about the the cards was that this idea of searching a location and, and trying to scavenge stuff, and that's something that people who play video games know a lot. You know, what am I going to get from the loot table? Or even tabletop <laughs> RPGs, for instance. Uh, one of her early complaints about the game was she doesn't feel like there's this sense of discovery or this tension from game to game about whether or not you're even going to find the sniper rifle. Um, and she kind of feels like this is a kind of a puzzle thing. It's a system that we game and for me, that's not necessarily a bad thing, rather than a cool sense of discovery that actually feels like searching. Um, and there's there's definitely those two camps of people that some people want that assurity. They want that puzzle to figure out. And other people just want crazy discovery. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, one of the other things that came up uh, with crossword cards is it's like, why do we read all of it? <laughs> you know, I only mm-hmm. I only want to know what the story bit of the options are. I don't know what actually happens. Oh, well, oh. Then, and, then, <laughs> and then there's those two camps where it's like, oh, now it's super random. And now, right. now I definitely don't know what's going to happen. And then there's those other people that are meta. And it's like, OK, I already read every card. I know exactly what decision to make, <laughs> you know, and I think it's one of those things that, you know, it just depends on the player mm-hmm. and how they're going to. How, how they're going to react to certain things. Um, and I think that w- what we try to do with Dead of Winter is, you know, offer a little bit of both worlds for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, so those people that want to go ahead and analyze, you know, the mechanics and have a interesting gameplay, but those people that also have, you know, I want to have a great experience, I want to have a story come alive, and it really melds those two things together. Mm-hmm. And that's something that... Um, I have tried throughout throughout my other designs is really trying to make the mechanics feel the theme, but at the same time let the story come out and let this let these let these things um, happen organically amongst the players. And it's like, okay, cool. I have you know I found this thing at the police station where it would most likely be in the real world. Right. You know what I mean? Um, so. So there's there's those two camps, and I think that's really interesting to have both, you know, present in the gameplay. Yeah, Isaac, John, I've got an idea. Uh, so what if we take and so the first expansion we talked about doing is like a Raxon Pharmaceutical expansion, 
and it has to do with kind of the origins and it pays off some of the storylines and introduces you to some some interesting ulterior motives. Uh, what, what if, uh, you know, Raxon Pharmaceuticals has its own deck and then you have another deck that ends up adding cards to each deck and then they shuffle in and then they can help tell, maybe they end up, you know, being a little bit cluey about, you know, the whole Raxon mystery. And then it, yeah, and then it also I, adds in a little bit of randomness to, to get a little bit more of that discovery nature without, you know, totally blowing it off its wheels. I think that's a cool idea. And I think another uh, another thing that we could add to is another uh, variant to people who want to play the co-op or the hardcore or, you know, pump up the pump up the difficulty of the game. Shuffle all the decks together. Yeah, put twenty, no. put 20 in. <laughs> no, you're, bra- you're breaking my head, Isaac. <laughs> <laughs> no. Shuffle all the decks together and put them in the twenty loca- in the six different locations. <laughs> it, they all have the same backs. It's not going to be a problem. And if you want to play that way, you can totally do that. It's going to be more difficult, right? <laughs> when you really want that and food, and you really want to know where you're going to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We do- just to be clear, we do not suggest this. <laughs> I think what Isaac is trying to say is that we're big proponents of it is your game. If something makes it more fun for you, we are not sticklers to our rules. Change them. Make the game more fun for you. Well, I will say, Colby, one of the things that I had thought of is, and I'm, I'm totally happy with where the game is now, and I want to kind of explain why in a moment, but one of the things I've thought of is what if we just took each location's deck and just took three of the cards out of play for the game. You know, maybe both sniper rifles aren't at the police station after all. Maybe only one of them is in play. Heck, maybe both of them got taken out of the game. Uh, so that's one of the variants that I've kind of toyed with. But this idea of shuffling them all together, oh my god, that's terrible. Awesome. <laughs> so I, I, I vote we exile Isaac. <laughs> Well, Isaac, Tom, have you implemented this variant? Have you no, 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 no. I'm, I'm, so here's why I haven't implemented it. Um, when, 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 when my friend first mentioned this, uh, and I was kind of like, yeah, you know what? You're kind of right. Um, another game I've played re- recently, um, there's, a, there's a, an RPG system called Pathfinder, and they made a game called the uh, Adventure Card Game. And it, it plays mm-hmm. with all of these decks that you're, you're building, and you're going through them searching. And it reminds me a lot of of what you guys did with Dead of Winter. There's there's also a really cool deck builder called Arctic Scavenger, and they mm-hmm. have different mechanics for how you go work with different decks, and, and it creates this sense of discovery. And am I going to find something cool? Is there even something good in there? Um, but so when, when my friend brought this up about how there's not any sense of discovery and you're always going to find the same cards, at first I was like, well, yeah, you know what? You're right, because one of my favorite things in a game is when the game box includes a lot of cool things. And in any given game, some of them won't be there. And so so a couple of recent examples, Martin Wallace made a game called A Study in Emerald. And all these cities are populated with cards, depending on the number of players, but of all these cool cards in the game, and they include things like like Sherlock Holmes and Otto von Bismarck and Ashogath, and it's Lovecraftian stuff in the Victorian era, of all the cards in the game that are included in the box, maybe only, maybe only half of them will appear on the game board. Um, mm-hmm. Another game that does this is, and I, I love this about City of Remnants, Isaac, is in City of Remnants, your economy is com- 
not randomized, but yeah, it's, it's depending on how you pick which buildings are going to come into play. You know, some of the games of City of Remnants will have those strong points, the strongholds, and that makes for a completely different game than games without them. Some of them will have a bunch of the their traditional uh, buildings that make resources that you sell. Some of them will have casinos. Some of them will have that crazy fight club. Um, but any given game, you don't really know what pieces are going to be in there. So when my friend brought this up, I was like, you know what? You're kind of right. Why can't this be like Study of Emerald or, 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 or City of Remnants where there are all of these cool searchable items, but only some of them are in any given game? But what brought me around and why, Colby, I don't feel the need to take some of the cards out of the locations is I realized, well, wait a minute. You guys are doing that with Dead of Winter, but it's just with the characters Instead of the items, you know, the mm-hmm. character in any given game is a huge can, can can hugely determine how the game unfolds. And we've mm-hmm. had games where it's like, oh god, we've got to find uh, the guy who searches the grocery store. You know, the farmer, or oh Jesus, we're all playing these cards. Where's the janitor already? You know, there <laughs> are games where we specifically you know get us the fireman early. Um, you know, or for instance, when I need to find books for my victory. Uh, uh, requirement, you know. Oh, good! I got the librarian. You know, I feel that way about the characters, so I don't feel the need so much to get that kind of, you know, what's going to happen with the locations. Uh, but I think it's interesting, and it's not something that I really predicted because, like I said, the way I play is not like, oh, and then I know that there's all these cards in here, and maybe it's because the game changed so many times as we played it that we <laughs> right. weren't always playing with the same set of everything. Uh, but. Uh, at, you know, I'm I'm really interested in this idea of well, can we can we get some surprise in there? And and I think an expansion is a perfect place to do it. Yeah, you know, yeah. you take five cards out of every deck and put five cards off of this random pile and and then shuffle them. And you don't you you know you don't know what's going to be in there and you don't know what you might find. And not everything's in the game. Yeah, yeah. Uh, finally, tell me real quick about. I'm nowhere near ready for this, but I want to know what you guys' experience is with it. Uh, the flip side of each scenario card has, uh, is it called hardcore mode? What do you call those other yes. sides? Yeah. Hardcore yep. mode. Uh, who can do those? <laughs> what? <laughs> What's going on there? Am I supposed to be? Is that- the goal of those is like the guy who says, eh, it's too easy. We played it, we played it 30 times and we got it down. If you do this and this, then, then, you know, the deck, it's got two shotguns, it's got two sniper rifles. You send someone <laughs> over there, they'll find them, you use them for, like, alright, well, let's make, let's make this side of the card that's like, always going to be challenging. Uh, Have you gotten any feedback from people actually using those? Or I just feel like, uh, I mean, I, 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 right now it's perfectly tuned for the other side for me. And some of the scenarios harder than others, of course. That's fine. But I look at the other sides of those and I'm like, well, I, you know, I'm nowhere near. I, I love this game. I've played it a lot. <laughs> I've tried to wrap my head around it. I'm nowhere near to ever being able to do those. I think they're for, I think they're for masochists. I think okay, they're for, right. like, <laughs> We want to lose ninety percent of the time and like just really savor that one victory. Uh, I think that's I think that's what that side's for. Yeah, I mean it's like it's like playing ghost stories on hell mode, or you know pandemic on legendary. Yeah, yeah. And whenever I demo at a convention, you know I always explain it to people. I was like. You know, we've got ten objectives in the game, and if you really hate yourself, you can play the hardcore mode. (laughs) (laughs) And it also allowed us to um, include a co-op variant as well. Um, where people are playing oh. a slightly harder version of the yeah. game, um, without the without the fact that they have their own secret objectives to complete. Right. Yeah. Oh, that makes yeah, perfect but- sense. Yeah, sort of take that level of difficulty out and compensate for it with a pure co-op. Uh, yeah, that makes perfect sense, Isaac. Yeah. 
Um, so, uh, what is the current situation with availability? Um, people can still get this, right? It's not like sold out or anything, is it? Uh, so, yeah, it appears sold out, but that's just because we did... Uh, you, people are used to Kickstarter, right? And Kickstarter happens, and there's a Kickstarter, and then it's going to... And this, we, we actually did pre-orders through our website, and we wanted to have it at Gen Con. Mm-hmm. And so what happened was we had them uh, ship over enough copies um, to early so that we would have enough to fill our pre-orders, and then also take some to Gen Con. Mm-hmm. And so, as a result, there was kind of an early release into the market, but not as clearly defined that there's going to be an early release as there is when there's a Kickstarter. So, the game street date is actually September 24th, and so I'm not <laughs> sure when this goes up. This will be it, up, yeah, this will be up slightly before the game is actually out in that case. <laughs> so, so, the street date is September 24th. We have it available on our website right now, and that might not be true by the time this goes up, because they are, are going pretty quick. But we usually get stock before it gets all the way through the distribution chain and out to to retailers. And then, you know, it, it's always appreciated when you order on our store. Like, we like to support our retailers. We like all that. But it, it's nice to make, you know, that big margin on some of the games. Absolutely, um, yeah. And that's what that pre-order drives about. And um, and that's what releasing them slightly early on our website's about. But you can get them now on our website. Not 100% that's still true. You'll be able to get them in stores on September 24th. Uh, we did have distributors order almost twice what was available. So we printed 10,000 copies, which is the biggest, uh, as big a print run as we've ever done, um, bigger than, than you know, all, most all of our games' print runs. And, um, and, and it was some, the demand was for something like 20,000 copies. Sure. Uh, so so there, there's going to be some short supply. If you haven't pre-ordered with somebody... Uh, I would suggest trying to do that now. Um, a lot of the shippers are going to be allocated, which means retailers are going to be allocated. And my hope is that that doesn't go all the way down to um, to allocations to to actually people who pre-ordered with their game store. But that is a possibility. We're, we're very sorry about that. And we have uh, copies printing as quickly as we can. There's a, there's a logistics issue. It, it takes you know it takes at least a month to print out, another month for them to get over here. Um, on a boat, and so, uh, but those those have been going, and um, and our hope is that we'll have a fairly decent stock prior to Christmas. So, uh, for folks listening, it's plaidhatgames.com, if I'm not mistaken, right, Colby? Yep. Yep. Uh, and then finally, finally, as I've said finally three times, but for real <laughs> finally this time, uh, I want each of you to tell me, so we're all going to play Dead of Winter, you don't know what your secret objective is yet, you don't even know the scenario, but... What you get to do is pick one character. Uh, your, your other one will be random, of course. You get to pick from the deck any one character. What I'm basically asking you, who is your favorite character? And in case you need a moment to think, I'm going to start with mine. And this is an unlikely choice. If you had asked me when I first looked at the character who my favorite was, I never would have thought I'd pick, I would have picked her. But after having played several times, my favorite character is the waitress. Because getting to pick four cards when you search, like getting to look more efficiently for that one card you want, as Mm -hmm. a guy who sort of has this puzzle approach, like we know this is in this deck, this is where we want to go to get these cards, man, that waitress is awesome. And and by the way, I can figure out what the fiction behind each power is for the most part. What is the point of a waitress being really good at searching? What was the thinking behind that? (laughs) She knows all the secrets around town. 
Everybody tells her things. She knows everybody. She's been around for a while. Well, she's also, have you come across her crossroad card yet? No, I haven't. Oh, but by the way, that's another cool thing. Is It's sort of like their secret backstory for every character. Yeah, so, right. her, her crossroad card helps explain that uh, a little bit. Okay, and, well, what, and, it doesn't, yeah. and it doesn't quite pay off, but it, it, it will pay off in the expansion. Okay, well, good, because I'm kind of in this weird thing, Colby, where I'm like, oh, don't tell me. I want to wait until it comes up normally. <laughs> like, it's almost like, like right. watching Walking Dead. Like, don't spoil something. Uh, okay, good to know. Good to know. Um, all right, so I'm super partial to the waitress. Uh, Colby, who's your favorite character in the game? You get to pick one of them. Well, I am in the game as the promo <laughs> character. Right, right, right. They okay. did do the Kodiak Colby, so I'm a little partial to him, but... Uh, I, I, would, I would have to say, since that's not in everybody's copy, uh, I'm going to go with the Doom Scooter. Rod. <laughs> the Doom Scooter. Wait, who's the yes. Scooter? I don't know what that is. What is Rod, that? Rod Miller, the truck driver, he's sitting on that chair, so we just pretend oh. he scoots that around everywhere. He never really stands up. We call him the Doom Scooter. Uh, Actually, <laughs> my friend Autumn. Uh, she came up with that name, and uh, and I liked it, so I used That's it. That's fantastic. Uh, we there's one of the the women, and she's either the school teacher who can get an, a, a free attack at the at the school, or she's the nurse. But there's one woman who's sitting down, and we've called her the butt scooter because <laughs> it looks like she's just kind of scooting on her butt around. It's the same thing as the yeah. Rod, Rod. So Rod cannot he cannot uh, or he does not have to roll the exposure die when he moves. And so, uh, you know, he's he's far more mobile, and the idea is, like, oh, he's siphoning gas, and uh, he was a truck driver, and yep. he's hot-wiring cars, what, whatnot. Um, but, uh, but like, just this mythos in this one game developed around him in that chair, and him just scooting around, and, right. and just being invincible. Nobody, they're all afraid of him or something, I don't know. Uh, Isaac, who would you pick? You get one character. I also, I'm, I'm torn. Because I love Sparky so much, yep. and all of the stuff that's come up, but Rod has also had so many funny moments <laughs> throughout throughout our games. Um, just like the Doom scooting. Uh, at one point, uh, he got Journey into Jazzercise, uh, and <laughs> and he was also he also got um, one of the crossword cards that was really. I don't want to spoil that one for you either, but um, uh, I'm sure that one's come up. The music one, you know that one, Tom. Where where you find a guitar? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah definitely. Yes. I love that. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. So he he had all those things, <laughs> and eventually his crossroad card triggers, and it's just like amazingness. <laughs> uh, Rod is a great character, Basically, but Sparky have, is have also. Have you triggered Rod's crossroad card yet? I do not think so. Uh, no. You well, the, the funny thing is, I, we've triggered so few of them. And you guys must know that the odds of a character being in play and the crossroads card coming up. Like for for instance, some of we've seen Brandon's a couple of times. Um, certainly Diego, the the fireman's a couple of times. Um, but yeah, like there's a bunch of them that for whatever reason just the stars don't align and there's no yeah, when they're going to happen. Yeah. There's a couple of different. There's a couple of different. Um, there's a couple of different triggers on those. So some of them are more rare. Like the player who's taking a turn has to have that character and right. those do not come up very often right those will come up once in a while and that'll be a really memorable moment um yeah. and then other ones are just that characters in play so that's is rod's one that, where the character has to where he has to i play. believe he's just in play mm-hmm. so so that one shouldn't be too hard to find i do not think we've seen that one yeah um so don't spoil it yeah all right i won't spoil it i really want to because the story <laughs> that developed here it's pretty pretty great but i I can imagine the folks folks listening who have seen the trigger who have had the card come up (laughs) might have an inkling of what 
what you're talking about, but I don't know. I haven't seen it. So, <laughs> uh, all right, John, one character you get to pick your favorite. You know, I gotta pick the underdog. I'm gonna go with uh, Forrest, the Mall Santa. <laughs> the worst character. <laughs> the worst character. You know what? No, no, Colby, I'm not gonna accept that. You say the worst character. We. <laughs> We we would have won last night if he'd been there. You know, being able to sacrifice a character for one morale. Those games where you lose by one morale, if Forrest had been in those games, you would have won. Uh, Forrest is a hero. We, let... we do not need a hero here. I need my friggin' meds. <laughs> you know, and, and the, one of the reasons I picked Forrest is, is one of my most memorable games. And, you know... I've, I've been playing it for you know, almost four years now, and like, there's still games from like three years ago that stick out to me. And it was with Colby and Isaac when uh, Colby came up here to play it after Gen Con, after some revisions, and he had Forrest, and Forrest had gotten bit, and at the time, bites didn't trigger right away. Um, they were kind of a delayed action, and uh, Forrest got bitten, and then he got a crossroad card, and he went on a rampage. <laughs> <laughs> and just wiped out zombies everywhere, and then he just killed himself, and everybody cheered. Morale went up. <laughs> it was just—it was such a great moment with Forrest. I also, uh, as a guy with a soft spot for the Billy Bob Thornton movie uh, Bad Santa, I'm always happy to sort of imagine different incarnations of Forrest that might be more in line with that movie. Yeah, <laughs> and, he, and he looks like Bill Murray. Oh, now you've made. Oh, yeah. Now you've made it even harder for me to sacrifice him. <laughs> when you point that I, out. I always picture him as just this goofy guy. That's you know, like Bill Bill Murray's personality. Every time right. I play with him, right, right. Um, did you guys have placeholder where you used famous people for different characters? I used artwork? the entire cast of Lost. <laughs> oh, the original, the original the original prototype was Lost characters because it was we could get like. Headshots of all of them, and they all look like they belong together. Yeah, um, we needed thirty people that all looked like they were surviving together. Right, right, right. Uh, do any of those like? Uh, can you remember like who would have been like like uh, Jack or Lily, Evangeline oh. Lily or stuff? Like, do you remember any of those? <laughs> I yeah, don't. You're, making, you, you're making me stretch my memory. Now. <laughs> <laughs> I could look back at some of the old files, but definitely every character in the game has an analog there. I think would, Rod was Rod was Hurley was Rod. I okay, remember right. that. Uh, who would have been a John Locke? <laughs> Maybe the uh, was he the was he the psychologist? Oh no, John Locke's it. Yeah, I, I got the wrong. I was thinking oh, no, the, no, no. the blonde-haired guy. No, John Locke, John Locke's the bald guy. Yeah, the bald guy who's in the wheelchair who could yeah. walk in after being on the island. John Locke, I think, was the sheriff. Oh, I can oh see yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I can kind of see that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. For, yeah. Forrest was the old guy. The uh, the guy who is the husband, uh, the husband and wife couple. Right. I think he was a dentist and lost or something. Or yeah, yeah, I yep. remember who you're talking about. Yep, yep, yep. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that that's. Per- I Sparky think- was a dog. Yep. Oh, of course, uh, Vincent. Was it the dog Vincent? <laughs> yep, Vincent. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. That's that's the reason Sparky's in the game. Right, right. For real, I thought I thought Sparky was your invention, John. No, no, he came from we we needed all those survivors, so we just no, pasted everybody in. Yeah, that's where I I brought him out of. Um, just lost. Right. Uh, I, by the way, so one of the things when I, uh, you know, I, I find it's hugely important. Uh, one of the significant things when you teach a game and you're, you're showing it to people the first time is minimizing, like, setup and teardown time. Um, and minimizing, like, how long it takes when somebody draws a card to find the survivor tile. So one of the things I've done when I have the game set up 
is I segregate the male and female <laughs> standees. And not because, you know, I feel women and men should be separate or anything like that, just because it's easier to have, you know, when you draw a card to think, okay, it's a dude, he's going to be in this group. It's like easier to find them. Um, well, you, you don't want them to fraternize in the bots or else you're going to get more helpless survivors. Thank you, exactly. That's another good reason. Uh, but am I correct to have Spike, Sparky in with the girls? Is Sparky a dude dog or a chick dog? Sparky's a dude. Uh, no, well, yeah. put him with the girls just because they're. Few- <laughs> yeah. If you guys feel that it's okay for me, you know, it's my copy of the game. I'll do. I think I might <laughs> you can do whatever you want. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you should have his own box. You probably, probably haven't triggered Sparky's card. He is. No, I've seen Sparky's card. I love Sparky's okay, card okay. because everybody, without fail, will say, "Wait, can I equip the dog with?" Right, right. <laughs> everybody, without fail, in a game will ask that. Yeah, and there's. My, my- I think there's a Crossroads card that says something about um, blah, 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 a human character. I, I mean, I feel like there's at least one instance of... There, like- was, there was one. There was one... Uh, <laughs> there was like a, a sex scene type of... Or a yes. squirrel. It's a romance thing, I think. We didn't want to yeah. tip the scale into bestiality. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's so, just some things that are off limits. <laughs> we did say human character there. That was one of the things that, that, that I contributed was... Um, uh, I wrote a number of these cards. Uh-huh. Right. Well, I wrote a number of these cards, so like I can remember a lot of like, oh, this is why we did that. Oh, Sparky's card needs to explain why he's using these weapons and kind of give his stunt dog past origins. Right. Uh, I, I can imagine that must have been a lot of fun, like just coming up with the little snippets of... Oh, my God, it was so tough. It was so <laughs> tough. Why do you say it was tough? I can imagine. What, it sounds like a ball. Why do you say it was tough? It, 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 it was fun. Until you have to do eighty of them back to back, because like the game's waiting on you to finish these. Right, sure. It's it's tough because you got because you got to have a trigger, and then it's based on that trigger, and you know, it's got to fit in the overall theme of the game. But it's got to it's got to be unique enough, and it's got to have two choices. And there's only a few things you can do with the choice. You can do bad and bad, or you can do good and good. You can do give up this to get this. Oh, I'm so mad at you guys. By the way, you have one card in there, and it's a total dick move. Where. <laughs> You guys were like, option one, do blah, 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 blah. Oh, oh, it's a severed head. The severed head rolls out, and you scream, and something bad happens. Option two, the severed, ho- ro- the severed head rolls out, you scream, and something bad happens. Sometimes options don't really give you a choice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. That one was not me. That was Bisho, who is uh, <laughs> he is our dickiest uh, developer. Uh, I could not believe that. All of us at the table were like, oh, my God, seriously, that's what they're going to do. Uh, but no, I, I love little little tricks like that. That was yeah. cute. <laughs> Well, well, gentlemen, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about the game. I've had a grand time with it. Uh, it's uh, I've said this to a, a few developers, but one of my favorite things I can say about uh, Dead of Winter, it feels unique. I mean, you've done something that is its own creature. Um, I can certainly see other influences, but it creates unique experiences, and that's one of the highest praises I can offer any kind of game. Thank you. Um, Thank you, Tom. Thank you. So there you go. I don't know what more to add after that. That was awfully comp- comprehensive. I appreciated those fellows talking with me. That was great. Um, I, I'm sorry to say you might have a hard time getting Dead of Winter. Uh, it sounds like they are making copies available as quickly as they can, but it also sounds like a huge success for them. Um, if you like co-op games, though, uh, I absolutely recommend it. You can read my review on quarter to 3com for Dead of Winter. Um, 
One of the things that surprised me about Dead of Winter, I thought it would replace Battlestar Galactica. And even though I kind of, you know, at the, at the top of this podcast, I, I had a few unkind words for Battlestar Galactica, I feel like there might still be a place in my in my library for Battlestar Galactica. There might still be times I would want to pull that one out. Um, but Dead of Winter is a fantastic complement to any collection of board games, and specifically anyone interested in co-op games that aren't pure co-op, that do have some sense of competition, and that do have a really cool trader mechanic. Um, so there you go. Uh, that's this week's podcast. I thank you very much for listening. Uh, I will be back next week with Brandon Kakowski-Schnell, uh, and maybe we'll talk a little Wastelands 2, uh, which I've been playing, and I think Brandon... I don't know if Brandon will try that. I forget where he is on that one. Uh, but at any rate, we'll be here next week, and I hope you will join us then.